welcome to the SSA podcast. Uh, I'm here today talking to Dr. Will Haydock, um, who has worked for uh, nearly 10 years as a, a drug and alcohol commissioner in Dorset. Um, Will, welcome to the SSA podcast. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Um, so we're talking to you about your um, experiences uh, in commissioning, recommissioning and, and contract monitoring. You know, really, really grateful to get your uh, perspectives on this. Uh, how big a job is it to uh, recommission a drug treatment service in a, in a local authority, a, a borough or a county? Well, I suppose if we're thinking about that specific process of mm. the reprocurement bit, it can really have impacts for a number of years. So what you'd want to do if you're winding up to that as a local authority is review what you've got in place at the time, do some proper analysis of what you think the needs are, consult widely about what people who use treatment and other professionals who are involved in the sector would like to see, what's going well, what could be done better. And that's even before you start the kind of formal procurement process of maybe there's a tender, maybe there's some other kind of procurement process that you're running, and then go through all of that, then award, and then you'd have a mobilization period, which would help the new provider, if you are appointing somebody new, get to grips with what exactly they're going to do in practice. So you you could end up from the start of the process through to actually day one of a new contract and the service being up and running, it could be well over a year. Um, You'd want it to be well over a year, in my view. Um, And that will probably then end up being the commissioner or the commissioning team's main focus for that period of a year, 18 months, maybe longer, depending on the kind of level of change that you want to see. If it's a relatively similar kind of like-for-like process, then it it could potentially be quicker than a year because you might have all that stuff done and dusted in terms of initial consultation, working out what you're going to do. But it is a really quite a big undertaking um, in terms of the amount of time that staff would have to put in to plan that and potentially just the number of bits of bureaucracy that have to line up to make it happen because quite rightly... If you're going to make that kind of a change in in what's provided, it's not just about consulting and making sure that you're looking at the right data. It's also about making sure that there's proper oversight of that from the local authority, whether that's officers or elected members, and potentially, depending on your structures locally, other partners from health or or criminal justice or whatever organisations might be involved in your your local governance arrangements. So, so what kind of um, situations or uh, impetuses would start that progress? I mean, what, what triggers you to say, right, okay, we're gonna we're gonna look at recommissioning this this now? Well, I suppose sometimes that's almost just historical accident or the consequence of a decision in the past. So, say you set up a service and you put a time frame on that that said this will last for X number of years. And that might have had really good logic at the time. That might have been because the funding associated with this service was only guaranteed for X number of years. So say that arrangement comes to an end, you'd then be prompted to go, okay, well, we're going to have to look at what we have in the future. Or say there is a change in in the funding that's available. So as we've seen over the past 10 years, say in the sector, if there's a dramatic cut in the funding available, 
depending on how you arrange things locally, you might have a conversation as a commissioner with the provider and say, look, we're actually going to have to change this contract quite substantially because there's less money. We want to focus on slightly different things. And so we're going to have to, you know, those are the kind of external things that could happen. But equally, you could internally, or I say internally, but you could work with different partners across the system, maybe um, service users, other stakeholders, and say, actually, what we've got isn't working. Maybe you've noticed that the outcomes from the system aren't great. Maybe there's been uh, a change in what you think is needed locally. So say, for example, you've always historically concentrated on opiate and crack use, and that's been the kind of main bread and butter of the service. That's been the main client group. You might see a trend coming through with uh, a particular group of people using different substances or using them in a different way, or maybe they're using in a different area of the county, for example. The, The focus of the service has changed. A lot of that can be addressed within current contracts, I would say, most of the time. And you can have that constructive conversation with a provider and say, uh, well, when we originally designed this service, we had you providing the services primarily from town A, but it looks like town B is becoming a real issue. So can we review what we're doing and try and think about doing something better over there? Most of that can be resolved in, the, in, in that kind of, through that kind of conversation. But sometimes there will be times where you're trying to make a bigger change and that does actually need a formal contract change maybe or it might be that the provider says actually what you're looking to do now isn't quite our thing we're we're not comfortable with doing that or we're not the best people to do that Um, or you might have the view as a commissioner or other stakeholders might have the view you're just not happy with with how it's going with that provider and so you're going to effectively go out and ask if there's anyone else who could do a better job there's quite often talk of, of like, say, the, the three-year commissioning cycle, and this is something that that was touched on in uh, Dame Carol Black's report about, about looking to longer commissioning cycles. So that's, that's not something that, that's kind of set as a, as a three-year commissioning cycle. Um, how has that become such a kind of um, uh, pattern, I suppose, of commissioning? I think maybe that can be overstated as a, a kind of trend or a, a standard pattern. And in my experience, and we're talking really about the last 10 years, I think there's been a huge commitment by commissioners right across the country to look at things a bit differently. So part of the impetus behind those kind of cycles is, is often funding. So how far into the future is, in this instance, a local authority, but any given commissioning organisation prepared to commit and I think often that comes from a tendency for strategies or financial plans of organizations often to be three to five years and so those those feel like lengths of time that um, people making decisions about particularly finances feel they can commit to okay but I think in reality there's no particular reason for those time limits. There's no kind of legal reason that you couldn't set much longer periods. There's no reason why you couldn't write in enough security for the provider and the commissioner to run something over a longer period. And I think sometimes that's just 
a lack of understanding or open conversation between providers and commissioners. So if you imagine that situation I'm describing where, say, a local authority feels it can only commit to three years of contract because it feels it's that's the most risk it can take because it's not dealing with stable or guaranteed budgets. There, there's something to be said about going to a provider and saying, well, actually, what would you prefer? Would you prefer a three-year contract where we can actually guarantee the funding for all three years? Or would you prefer something considerably longer, but we're only guaranteeing the funding for the first three years? And after that, this could look really different. We might, well, as, as we've seen in the sector over the past few years, we might have considerably less money available. And then that could put you as a provider in a difficult position. Because there are issues about that in terms of you're recruiting people on permanent contracts or temporary contracts. What does that mean if you're having to potentially make people redundant if the funding is reduced by big amounts? So there are risks that the provider would be taking on if it went for longer than that. But I think if you talk to most providers now, they would say, we'd rather have the long-term stable arrangement in terms of we're definitely going to be providing services here but the funding isn't confirmed, then something that's shorter term, but the funding is guaranteed. So I think it's that balancing of risk. Um, and maybe in some cases that's been got wrong, or we haven't had maybe those open conversations with providers to say, actually, th- this is up for debate. And then you can go back as a commissioner to chief executives or people who are senior in finance or procurement and say, well, having done a bit of this kind of what might be called soft market testing, what's going to be most attractive to the market isn't a neat, straightforward three, maybe five-year contract with guaranteed funding for each year, all laid out in the classic way where you'd say this is the funding for year one, year two, year three, and so on. Actually, what we want is a longer term, but a bit more flexible agreement. So I, I think if you have those kind of open conversations between commissioners and providers, that then allows you to have, again, an, an, an open and honest conversation with finance and procurement and chief execs and so on, and say, this is the best way forward. And maybe in the past, particularly when people didn't have so much experience of uh, dealing with procurement, so you're talking about people who've come into commissioning who maybe that isn't their natural or historic kind of role, people who are more familiar with delivering services. So don't necessarily know the ins and outs of procurement law. You've maybe got procurement specialists who would prefer the nice, simple, classic um, (laughs) service agreement because it's easier and it's more reliable and there is less risk. Um, And and maybe now we've got to a stage where because there's been this kind of way of operating for quite a few years, we've got a lot of very experienced commissioners in the sector. We're looking at some more innovative well, I say innovative, they're not actually that innovative, but more flexible, um, more collaborative arrangements. And and that's about lear- almost learning on the job and, and having that confidence to talk. Whereas I, there's any number of scenarios where people can get overly concerned about what they can say to providers or when they can talk to providers actually regulations are reasonably flexible about that in terms of soft market testing in terms of having open events where you can just have a very initial conversation 
um, and involving the widest group possible, really, rather than, I think, that historic approach, which was probably closer to the commissioner designed something, doesn't talk to anyone because they're worried about prejudicing the market or a challenge through the procurement process, um, and then comes out with something that's been developed sort of in a darkened room or in a black box. <laughs> that I, I think with that there was a tendency to maybe do that and work in isolation rather than it being a more collaborative enterprise. Have we? Um, have you come across uh, a Professor Ritter in um, the interview, the addiction audio interview I, I did with her a few weeks ago? Talked about uh, fixed price tendering, where the um, uh, the judgment was solely made on um, yeah quality, I suppose, uh, assessments of of the proposed quality rather than of the price. Is that something that we're seeing um, in England or the UK? Yeah, I think so. It it may or may not be. Um exactly fixed price tendering but certainly that approach exists and i think it makes a lot of sense if you think of how budgets are negotiated and set both at a kind of national and local level so if you think of how substance misuse treatment services are funded that's largely through the public health grant which is determined by you know formula and negotiations nationally so a local authority will simply be given what their grant is and then there'll be a kind of local discussion of how much of that goes to each of the different things that they're going to need to buy effectively within a a local public health department but once you've had those discussions you've had that conversation about how much are we willing to commit to sexual health or to substance misuse treatment in a sense for me there's very little point in reopening that debate through changing the price in a procurement process if you've decided there's two million pounds available for this service per year that's that's the price you've already set it (laughs) the competition is now about how much can we get how good will it be what will it look like that there's not a huge amount of value in someone saying well i can do this for 1.9 million because then you're left with the conversation of well, what then happens to the supposed savings out of that? They still have to be spent on public health. This is a ring-fenced grant. And if the local authorities already decided this is how much we're allocating to substance misuse treatment, you're then left with a slight anomaly of, well, we've got less, um, or rather we've got more money to, than we thought to spend, in a sense, on substance misuse treatment. So I don't, I don't think that solves anything. There's plenty of scope within current regulations to focus the competition on quality, focus the competition on design. Um, and there are other ways as well that you can remove some of those concerns about uh, spend and risk um, in terms of managing the variations in price of medications or dispensing, for example. There are ways that you can kind of isolate that spend from the wider service spend. Um, so there's all sorts of things you can do within the current regulations. So, so looking on to the other parks, I know that there's, there's a lot of um, uh, attention paid to, to the recommissioning, you know, to services switching over. Um, but actually, your job as a as a commissioner runs throughout the life cycle of any of any project, um, and there's there's contract monitoring and um, and other kinds uh, other similar activities. Um, that must be particularly challenging within addiction where, you know, identifying positive outcomes and uh, which part of the system you attribute those to. 
that success to you? That must be particularly challenging. How do you go about kind of unpicking what works and what perhaps needs to be improved from a from a whole drug treatment system? Well, a core part of that probably is the data. And, and a lot of it, you might well start with the data because I think in substance misuse, although it might not feel like it, we're, we're quite lucky in the UK to have the data that we do on substance misuse. It's not it's perfect. NDTMS and Exactly. It's not perfect and it needs improving and it causes all sorts of issues for software developers and professionals actually delivering the services and commissioners trying to maybe um, sit somewhere in the middle of that and negotiate. But having the data that we do makes life easier than if you were to look at, for example, local authorities managing um, housing support contracts. Having sat in those kind of meetings, I can feel confident and comfortable that substance misuse is in a better place in terms of what what data we have available, what information we have available. And there's a lot in that which isn't just about successful completion, that is trying to look at quality of life measures, mental health and mental health treatment, that is looking at housing or employment or any of these things that we think might also reflect progress or performance of a service, how well it's doing. But absolutely, that's quite a narrow definition. And if you think of, you referred to contract management, but that broader role of commissioning actually is a lot of the time talking to other relevant services and stakeholders, for want of a better word. So resolving issues about, say, dispensing in pharmacies or um, what medications people can receive if they're held in police custody or the transition between someone coming out of prison on a prescription and starting a new prescription based in the community. All those bits are as much commissioning as running a procurement process. And that's where you get your kind of feedback on how well is the service doing. In a sense, it's not necessarily about having a dashboard of what's gone up, what's gone down, what's red, amber, green on on a rag rating. And it's more about, I've been having this conversation with the manager of the police custody suite, and she said it's been a real challenge making sure that when you've got people in police custody, they can get their daily dose of methadone if it's still sat at the pharmacy. So can we talk that through? And that will involve the the healthcare in custody, the police officers in custody, the pharmacies, and maybe your local pharmaceutical committee, as well as the commissioner and the treatment service. So that's, I think, where the conversations or the time is mostly spent and where it should be spent rather than necessarily looking at, at data or thinking of performance in a narrow sense. I think it's more about sitting down with a provider and, and trying to be useful in some of those conversations where they'll naturally focus on what they can control and what they can influence um, and you would be thinking then as a commissioner how can we make this link into a broader system there's also obviously that that broader internal scrutiny role so as well as looking at data in terms of that you're also thinking what's what's the kind of i was going to say softer but it's it's something slightly different to that what's the the more nuanced sense of how good the service is. So 
how well are we providing interventions? How accessible are those? And particularly around clinical supervision, I think is an area where we can potentially improve. So that's, and that, that's partly just time pressure and some of the pressures noted in the Dame Carol Black review of the workforce that, that is available. There have been many initiatives over the past 10, 15 and, and almost certainly longer years that have never quite taken uh, to an extent. The, you know, there's, there's been Danos, there's been the MVQ in health and social care, and they've never quite um, uh, taken to, to get that kind of that minimum qualification for all people working in drug and alcohol services. Have you any idea why that is and, and what might kind of help break that deadlock? I think there's simplistically two kind of reasons for that. One is making sure there is that national structure that could make a real difference. And that might mean making a substance misuse professional in some way a, a registered profession so that there is some kind of oversight of that where people have certain criteria that they need to fill to hold those kind of roles. But it's partly also a funding issue as well. And that might be in part linked to some of the elements of marketization and competition that we talked about. But fundamentally, those are, are really driven by trying to get the most human interaction you can from the funding that there is, because what we know from the evidence is that it's that human interaction, that therapeutic alliance that is the best predictor of whether someone gets benefit from treatment or not. And the, the, the almost logical response of the system, I don't think this is down to individual decisions. I think it's one of those things where decisions are made and the the outcome is therefore that the time that a client spends in treatment, most of that will be with probably the least qualified and supervised individuals in the system because they're the people with the funding available that there are most of. There are very few, as we know from the Dame Carol Black Review and everyone in the sector knew already, there are very few psychologists and psychiatrists in the system. There are, uh, on a slightly separate issue, very few general nurses in the system. Um, and that's something that's worth being aware of when we think about particularly hospital admissions related to substance use, whether that kind of general healthcare is accessible within our, our sector. And the driver for that is just maximizing the time that people have and maximizing the number of staff that, that we have available. So I think that's a funding issue. And then there's something about national structures and oversight. Um, and, and sometimes this falls into a bit of a, a difficult debate about registered professionals about the quality of oversight within the NHS or within the third sector or the private sector. And really that, I, that in a sense is a bit of a, a distraction to me. What you really want is regardless of the employing organization or regardless of the registration of the individual that someone comes into contact with, you want them to have the skills and the confidence to deliver appropriate interventions and make appropriate referrals onwards if that's required. And that does need a lot more work. 
recognizing that it isn't just about funding and it isn't just about national structures. It's also about having the time and the ability and the commitment to deliver some of these things at a local level. And in itself, funding won't solve that. In itself, a structural change won't solve that. You need to be able to, as a local system, take the time to step back and reflect and then do all the kind of quality assurance work that needs to sit around this. And sometimes, regardless of any commissioning structure or organisational structure or professional registration or anything like that, the reality of the work is simply that it's always going to be hard to prioritise that time of stepping back, not actually delivering a service, but thinking about how you deliver the service. And in some ways, that's, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, that's that's what commissioning as an idea or a process sometimes mm-hmm. brings, is it forces that moment of reflection, service review, needs assessment, however you want to understand it. And there is something about making sure that that cycle exists. It doesn't need to be a cycle that leads to procurement, but it does need to be that cycle of whatever words you want to use, but that kind of analyze, plan, do, review, needs to be an ongoing process where we do take the time to step back and go, hang on a minute, is what we're doing working? Could we do it better? That's that's really interesting. Um, I think that there are also within some of those those issues are particularly around the workforce. There are challenges for research in, in demonstrating. There's lots of research that demonstrates the, um, the importance and the effect of delivering evidence-based interventions, be they contingency management, um, uh, medical interventions, behavioural couples therapy, mm-hmm. whatever. But there are fewer, um, there is less evidence about the effectiveness of, um, of trained staff versus untrained staff. Um, and actually, when you look at the workforce and the skills that they, the skills and the qualities that they bring, uh, it's harder. It's a harder task to research uh, the differences in in the person delivering those interventions. And I think a really uh, fascinating challenge for for research. Research feels, and this is me speaking as an outsider, it feels much more embedded into NH, NHS work and kind of care that is seen as more clinical. It's not unusual when you go into a hospital to find that there is something new being trialed. It might be a new wound dressing, it might be a new medication, it might be a new way of delivering that medication. And that feels perfectly normal when you're involved in in that kind of care. My experience, and this may just be my experience, is that research is not so embedded in substance misuse services as as a default almost as something you know that is seen as just part of everyday business and that that may be something to do with how it's organized or how it's separated perhaps from the nhs uh you know local authorities are not generators of research or academic research in quite the same way as nhs trusts and and staff and medical professionals so there might be something in that about could we be more innovative? Could we build the evidence base better within substance misuse services? Um, I think there's a real opportunity there. Mm. I just want to get a, a, a bit of an understanding of the, the pressures that commissioners face. So largely your job is um, 
it's contract management in a very broad sense of, of, of what happens in mm-hmm. drug treatment services. Um, but what are the pressures that you're subject to? I mean, who, who assesses the performance of, of commissioners, uh, for example? I think that's a really good question um, because where we are now in terms of how things are arranged, well, nationally and locally, is that that's hugely variable from one area to the next. So I think you'd have a situation where that could be hugely dependent on the culture of a local authority and the culture of an individual public health team as well. So there might be a local authority culture or pressures within a local authority to save large amounts of money. There might be a particular approach to procurement or contract management that is either um, very involved, very service user-centered, very focused on partnership, or there might be one that is much more transactional. Um, And that could happen within a public health team as well, if that's where a commissioner is located, bearing in mind that a lot of public health teams came over from primary care trusts, which had a history, again, in my experience, Mm -hmm. of commissioning in a more um, laissez-faire, potentially trusting way than you'd see in a local authority. So a PCT would, I would say, generally have more trust in their local NHS trust, their commissioning, or the, to, to, to deliver a quality service without them getting too involved in the nuts and bolts of it. Whereas if you looked at a local authority model of commissioning, they'd probably want to be much more involved in the nuts and bolts of the housing support service. Um, and and be more involved in decisions taken about what that service looks like, where it's kind of bases and, and so on. So I think the history of the oversight for commissioners will depend on the culture locally. And I think where the Dame Carol Black Review is clear about that is what, why is there such variation in terms of the background of commissioners, in terms of the qualifications they've got, in terms of the other responsibilities that they have, you know, you do have people in the sector who've been, who've had experience delivering services, who've got decades of experience of being involved in the design and commissioning of services, who've got qualifications in both providing services and commissioning them. That's not the case universally, but if those qualifications in commissioning or qualifications in understanding substance misuse are valuable, then there ought to be clear recommendations and guidance that everyone should have them. But at the moment, it can completely depend on your local situation. That, that matches in with uh, something that um, Professor Ritter was saying as well about the complexities of funding and, and how it's uh, kind of operationalised at a national level, uh, which I think is in itself a fascinating area. Um, uh, the final question is about market forces. Coming back to um, um, Alison Ritter's uh, research, so you know, market forces are all around us, uh, you know. They, they drive the uh, the price and the quality of a tin of baked beans and um, and a loaf of bread. Is there any reason why they wouldn't work for uh, commissioning drug treatment drug treatment services? Yes, there are there are reasons in that it depends what you're looking for and what that interaction creates. So the danger with market forces is that they can sour the relationship you have and that's the relationship between 
commissioner and provider, but also the relationship with the person who should be at the heart of it, the, the client, the service user, the patient. So there's pretty good research that looks at the way primary care has been commissioned over the past 10, 20 years that suggests that as you make there to be more financial incentives, that actually turns the relationship into being one that's about money. So what I mean by that is if you say a core part of your business as a GP is to deliver alcohol screening and brief interventions, and that's just core business and we need it to happen, that's one way of approaching the the issue. The alternative is to say, which is often resorted to by government and commissioners, uh, that hasn't really happened. So what we'll do is we'll attach a financial incentive to that. Okay, so if you do alcohol screening and brief intervention, for each thing that you do, you get paid X amount. And hopefully that increases the delivery of those things. Now, the first thing is that's always a bit dangerous because what we actually get is the recording of those things, whether or not they're happening, or we don't get any insight into how well they're happening necessarily. So it's in order to construct that incentive, you need to be quite careful to make sure you're actually paying for what is delivered or what you want. So that's the danger with the market forces is, is you create this transactional relationship. It also sets you up for a problem as a commissioner, because then when, when you do want something else to happen, you go back to them and say, oh, well, we, we said do it like this, but we'd actually like this. Or it's great that you're doing this, but could you do this thing as well? You've set that precedent then of, well, only if you pay me a fiver for each interaction I have, mm-hmm. rather than it being, oh, the evidence has changed. Now doing it in this way is better. And we're all on the same page with just trying to d- deliver services better. And I think you see that with particularly primary care, whether it's GPs or pharmacies that we've got this we've created this particularly with pharmacies an insanely complicated system of payments that becomes a really difficult point for discussion when in fact it would be easier to just say going back to your point about fixed budget commissioning it would be easier to say we're giving you this amount of funding we all know what good stuff is go out and do good stuff but we will keep monitoring what you're doing and we'll keep having conversations about how much of it you're doing, how good it actually is. But to get stuck into the transactional interaction of precisely how many of these things have you delivered, I think sours that relationship. And a a lot of what I think if you ask commissioners, they would say they do is relationship management, whether that's between different providers, whether that's with external stakeholders, and a lot of that would be easier if there wasn't actually the dynamic of potential competition or the kind of detail of those financial wranglings. That's been uh, really, really fascinating. Um, and it's been 43 minutes. So there's absolutely plenty there. Um, is there anything that we haven't covered that you would like to cover? A big part of being a commissioner is looking at the system, but also looking at the individual services right so yes part of it is being that glue between different providers um but it's also looking at the specific service and going well could we provide this in a different more efficient more effective way well at the same time you've already got plenty of managers and analysts 
within within any given provider talking about exactly those issues. So there's a danger that if you're not careful, you end up duplicating that work of reviewing services or analyzing data. Mm-hmm. You know, what is the point in in that kind of duplication? And the same happens with HR and quality assurance processes where every provider will have their own HR processes, their own training logs and so on. And then their commissioner will probably come along with that. Well, we've invented specially this local set of requirements Mm -hmm. and a way for you to log your training for all your staff, at which point the the kind of middle managers within the provider organization will have a a moment of crisis where they think, oh, do I have to enter all the information about the staff on two systems now? And that happens a lot, those kind of things. And so I think there's something about it's not just the marketization or the procurement that causes inefficiencies in that, Mm -hmm. but these multiple lines of oversight. The, The commissioning role is valuable for that opportunity to reflect and look at things at a system level, but also be a kind of external critical friend of the service provider specifically but you need that time to to step back and reflect and i think increasingly that's what commissioners don't have time to do as what you're left with is an individual who maybe would have been a joint commissioning manager or a dat coordinator or whatever any of these old yeah. terms that existed <laughs> in the old world and they had a team around and they probably had an analyst they probably had a commissioning officer they might have had some admin support. It will often just be that one individual trying to do all those roles. And I think you can do those roles altogether. I think you can slim stuff down. You know, commissioning's as big a job as you make it. You can spend as much or as little time as you want on it. But I think what happens if you do add those pressures is you don't get that time for reflection. And actually what that means is that you're then left with, particularly around procurement, Procurement processes are not universally bad. They can sometimes be a really useful tool. But if you're doing them almost on autopilot or you haven't had the time to reflect on what are we really trying to achieve and how are we going to do it, that's when it becomes largely a waste of everybody's time, effectively. But it's often a waste of time because people haven't had the time to do it properly. It's this kind of vicious cycle um, that you get into. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's something that anyone in any job can yeah. can, can probably relate to, but but, but certainly the uh, the consequences of it for in that kind of role can be quite stark. Um, thank you so much for your uh, for your insights into commissioning, um, uh, and thank you for your time today, uh, Will Haydock. <laughs>